you guys have been blessed by the worship music this morning. Can I hear an amen? Amen. Thank you, guys. You guys are tremendous. I don't, you know, I don't know if you guys realize how um, serious Ryan takes his, his job and um, how much work he puts into it and the demands he has on those in worship. Um, you know, it, it actually it frightens me a little bit. Um, I, I don't know if you guys can see in the front row or second row, you see Bonnie with her leg lifted up here. And um, she missed a note in practice. And I was in the back here studying, and all of a sudden I hear Ryan, he holds the line hard. And so, Jacob, I hope you don't ever mess up in practice, because if you do that to Bonnie, I'd be fearful what he'd do to you, because she's pretty tough. But, no, it, it's, uh, you guys sounded great. I love That's a great song, um, always, always. Just kind of like what we, we, when I read Psalm 100, you know, his love endures forever, just that, that comfort in knowing that no matter where life takes us, he is always, 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 always there with us. And um, that, that's, that's a comfort because, as Ryan said in his prayer, there are tough days. There are, there are a lot. In, in fact, there will probably be more tough days than good days in life. But, um, but despite that, in the midst of those difficult days, in the midst of that, how comforting it is to know that we have God with us, that he's there holding us. He's carrying us through that, through those difficult times. And so um, that's, that's a great deal. Uh, before we get into the, the lesson this morning, uh, just we don't have a firm date set yet, but more than likely about three weeks from today on a, on a Sunday evening, it'll be the first Sunday after the women's Bible study is done. Uh, we're working towards having like a vision casting um, Sunday afternoon type meeting and uh, we, it's going to be open for anybody and everybody who wants to come but um, I, I appreciate your prayers as we make those preparations as we continue to work th- things I've, I've told many of you and I probably said it here from the pulpit that I, I believe God's doing great things uh, it's exciting because I can look out over this group of people here and we have many people who are, are, are even out this week but but there's a lot of new faces for us. And next Sunday, I believe, if my math is correct, next Sunday means marks their six-month mark of Redemption Hill. So we've been around for six months. And God um, has done so much in six months um, by, by allowing and, and blessing us with a, such a tremendous worship group, with such tremendous people in here. We have people dedicated to working with the the babies and the, the little toddlers and stuff every week. Um, so many different people pouring in that get here early to help set up chairs and empty out the trailer and people that come and stay afterwards and put everything back up and help greet and fold bulletins. And there's just so many people doing so many things. And uh, Anthony and the guys um, doing the tech stuff. Just There's so many people at work and uh, God's good. I mean, that's the best I can say is God is good, and God will continue to be good. And and we just want to, at this kind of the six month break here, just kind of breathe again into some of the vision that God's placed on, on Pastor Ryan and my heart, and where we believe God um, has taken us the first six months, where we believe God's going to kind of take us in the next six months and beyond. And so, um, well, pray for us about that. One of the the big things that we're we're so um, we're working intently on is that we're going to we're going to try our best to have after that Sunday after 
spring break, which would probably be like the last Sunday in March. You moms would probably know that better than I would, but uh, we're going we're gonna to try our best to have Children's Church implemented so we can um, begin that. And again, it's just it's one more ministry. It requires um, sacrifice of, of, of some of you to help with that. Um, but I, I'm, a, I'm a firm believer. I, I, I'm passionate about children and youth. I'm a former youth pastor. Um, I, I just, they are, the youth are not the future of the church. The youth are the church today. Um, the little ones are the church of tomorrow. And so we need to invest into our children and our youth. We need to um, pour ourselves, we need to pour our time, our talents and treasures that God's blessed us with into those children to build them up and, um, and teach them and instruct them in God's word. And so, so pray for us about Children's Church. Um, pray for us that God continues to bring us the right people at the right time to help lead in these things. I'm, I'm a firm believer in excellence. If we launch something, if we do something, we want it to be done with excellence. But don't confuse excellence with dollars and cents. I mean, I don't, I don't mean that we need to have this um, uh, elaborate backdrop stage and all these different puppet shows and stuff like that going on. No, but by excellent, I mean, I believe that we need to put together a program in which um, at the center of it, like we try and do in our worship service here, where we try and keep Jesus in the center of it all and our worship music and our teaching, we want the same to, to take place with our children, that, that they have those times of, of music and, and singing maybe that's, that's centered around Jesus. And they have a lesson each week that's centered around Jesus and that we can teach them at a level that they understand. So when they go home, when you guys leave church and you guys go to your, your dinner or your lunch as a family, you can sit down and th- those kids will take what they learned there and they start telling mom and dad about what they learned in church. And so we want, we want that to happen. That, that's, we want that to become a fiber of Redemption Hill. So pray for us about that and, um, and, and that God continues to, to, to do some great things. So, All right, if you have your Bibles, please open up to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. Last week, if you were here, we, um, we started and we looked at the first 18 verses in John. And it was a very interesting miracle that Jesus performs um, so John chapter 5, and we're going we're to actually, today's lesson is going to take place in John chapter 5, verses 19 through 30, but, but we need to back up a little bit and, and refresh what we talked about last week because today's lesson is a building up from what, where we left off last week. So Jesus walks into Jerusalem. He's, he's coming back to the capital city. He's going back to the temple there's a feast going on, a Jewish feast. We don't know for sure what feast it is, but more than likely it was the Feast of Pentecost. And, and, and what is significant about that feast is that it was a celebration of the giving of the law. And so they would travel, people would travel from far away to Jerusalem and go to the temple, and they would celebrate this feast. Jesus, as he would, um, in, in the early days of his ministry, would come back to the city, come back to the temple as a worshiper, kind of following the Jewish law. And so Jesus comes, and what's interesting is before he goes to the temple, the Bible tells us that he enters through the sheep gate, that same gate that they would herd the sheep that would be sold uh, for the sacrifices. He enters through that sheep gate, and there there's this, there's this pool called the Pool of Bethesda. Uh, the translation of that would be the House of Grace. Bethesda means like the House of Grace. And it's kind of ironic because it really was not a place of grace this, or surrounding this, this pool were all these outcasts, these invalids, these, these 
people stricken with sickness. They've been rejected by the temple. And they found themselves in this sanitarium, if you will, of, of a mixture of Hebrew religion and Greek superstition. At this pool, there was this belief that this angel would come down and, and, and every once in a while would stir the pool. And the first person into the pool after it was stirred would be healed. And so these people would gather around and they would wait for the stirring to occur and they would jump in the pool. Jesus comes in and that's the first place he goes to is this place, a pagan temple, if you will, full of a congregation of invalids. And Jesus goes and what I find so amazing in that is Jesus finds the outcast of the outcasts. The man that was probably almost furthest away from the pool. And he goes up to that, that man and asks him if he'd like to be healed. And here's a man that had been an invalid, been paralyzed, been lame for 38 years. And of course his answer is yes. And Jesus goes and he, he, he doesn't just help him up like the man had said. The man had said, um, I, I, yes, I want to, but there's not even a person here. There's not a man here that can lift me up and take me to the pool. And Jesus doesn't lift him up and take him to the pool. Jesus looks at him and says, you're healed. Get up and walk. And this man who hadn't walked in 38 years stands up, rolls up his sleeping bag, and takes off. Now, I'm quite sure, as I said last week, he did more than walk. He's probably doing jumps and twirls and whatever. And he takes off, and, and as he leaves, there's these Pharisees that see this man holding his bedroll or sleeping bag, and he's walking. And John, in his transition, as we begin to celebrate, John makes a note that this occurred on the Sabbath. And this upset the Pharisees. They're mad, they're upset, because according to their laws, you are not to do anything on the Sabbath. And so they go and they confront this man. What are you doing? This is the Sabbath. How dare you carry your sleeping bag on the Sabbath? And to us, we can laugh about like, what in the world? It's a sleeping bag. This man hadn't walked in 38 years. And you're going to pick on him for carrying a sleeping bag? Last week, I told you that as amazing as this story is, and we, the first half of the story, you're like, yay, Jesus, this is awesome. The second half is kind of a crushing confusion. Because this man, he, he's... He's scolded by these Pharisees. And so in your mind, you're like, what in the world? These Pharisees are supposed to be religious leaders, authorities. How in the world can they not see the grace of Jesus? And then to me, what's almost as confusing is they go to this man. They say, what are you doing? And this man begins to blame Jesus. He says that he doesn't know who Jesus is. He just, as, as they, they beat him up, and not, not physically, but literally, I mean, they're, they're just saying, what are you doing? How can you do this? And, and this healed person goes, I, I don't know. All I know is this man healed me. He told me to get my bags and walk, and I did. It's not my fault. It's his. Well, who was it? I, I don't know who it was. Jesus had disappeared as the crowds began to gather. Well, later on, Jesus goes to the temple. He finds that man in the temple. Jesus reveals himself to him, and, and, and the man now knows it's Jesus. And as soon as this conversation takes place, Jesus says to him, basically, go and sin no more. Okay, I, 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 
I've healed you, I've saved you, go and sin no more. And as soon as this conversation takes place, this healed man runs back to the Pharisees and says, I know who it is, it was Jesus, it was Jesus who healed me. That story just, it hurts, I guess, because in that healing, we see the grace of Jesus, a love of Jesus. We see the legalism of the Pharisees, and then we see a cowardly faith. And I don't understand that part. Part of me says, I want to be so judgmental on this, on that one man, because he healed you. You've been lame for 38 years. You can walk. You just start taking your steps, and you're already blaming Jesus for it. But as we talked about last week, I think many of us, if we're being honest in our lives, can look back and see those times in our own lives when we've had a cowardly faith. When you felt God um, press upon your heart about maybe sharing your faith with next door neighbor or, or a coworker, But then we get a little too scared because they might not like it. They, maybe they'll make fun of us for it. Maybe they'll get mad at us for doing it. We've seen over the two weeks where there's this conflict between human expectation and the sovereignty of God. And that's where we left last week. And, and after, as this begins to conclude, this lame man kind of exits the scene. The Pharisees are upset. And now they go from scolding the lame man the healed man, and they go and find Jesus. And today we pick up this dialogue between the Pharisees and Jesus. The uh, title of the message this morning is Declarations That Demand Response. This morning we're going to see Jesus make six declarations. And what we have at the heart of this conversation is these men these Pharisees are battling with Jesus over who owns the Sabbath. Who owns the Sabbath? They get the idea of the Sabbath in the Old Testament, this, this rule of after following Jesus in the creation and the seventh day of creation, the Bible tells us the Lord rested. The reality is it wasn't like Jesus just slept for a day and did nothing. Okay, He rested from creation. God never stopped working. Let me be crystal clear about that. He never stopped protecting and providing. The moment if God were to stop, everything in creation would crumble and fall. So God never stopped working. He rested from the creation. And he took that time of rest to reflect. And that's why the Sabbath was created, for us to step back and reflect and to worship, not the creation, but the creator. And so at the heart of this issue here is a debate between Jesus and the, Sa- and the Pharisees over who actually owns the Sabbath. The Pharisees had taken one small rule and in their law created 23 chapters of the do's and don'ts of the Sabbath. And so what we'll see this morning quickly is Jesus making six declarations. I'm going to give you these six right now, and then we're going to walk our way through each of these six and talk about them. The first one we see is um, in verse 
19 through 20, and it says, where Jesus makes the declaration that I am equal with God. I am equal with God. Verses 19 through 20. The second declaration is found in verse 21, and he says that I am the giver of life. I am the giver of life. The third declaration, seen in verses 22 through 23, Jesus says, I am the final judge. I am the final judge. Verse number, or, or the fourth one found in verse 24, Jesus says, I will determine the eternal destiny of humanity. I will determine the eternal destiny of humanity. The fifth declaration that Jesus will make, found in verses 25 through 29, he says, I will raise the dead. I will raise the dead. And the final declaration that he'll make to the Pharisees, found in verse 30, is, I am always doing the will of of God. I'm always doing the will of God. Let's pray this morning before we start reading God's word. Lord, I pray that you be with us this morning. I pray as we look at these six declarations that you made to the Pharisees, that you allow us to see these. You allow us to grow closer to you, that you allow us to grab a hold of these declarations in a way that the Pharisees were not able to understand or comprehend or see or believe and ultimately accept. Lord, I pray that you work in hearts and minds. I pray you soften hearts. Holy Spirit, I pray that you give me the words to say. I pray that that this message is not filled with thoughts and sound bites of Chad Clement, but that this message is faithful to your text. This message is faithful to your word. May we give you all honor, Jesus, all glory for the things that you will do. For it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, so at first, let's, let's read verses 19 through 20. So 5, verse 19 through 20, it says, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son, shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him, so they may marvel. I'm equal with God. It's interesting. We see this on several occasions in this passage. Towards the middle, I guess, or beginning of that first verse, you see where, where John says, records Jesus saying, truly, truly. Your, some of your translations may say, verily, verily. Okay, Jesus did not have a stuttering problem. Okay, it wasn't like John just wanted to write twice. Whenever we see that truly, truly, verily, verily, what, they're do, what, what Jesus is doing, what John is recording, is, is Jesus emphasizing Okay, it's, it's Jesus saying, hey, listen, listen. Okay, this is true. It's true. It's true. He's punctuating what he's about to say. He wants them to understand this is important. This is fact. This is the truth. So listen clearly. He says, the son can do nothing of his own accord. 
I love this idea. Um, how Jesus, if you look back in uh, verse 17 of what we talked about last week, Jesus says, and he answers the Pharisees, My father's working until now, and I am working. Jesus makes this claim that he's equal with God. He and the Father are one. And so the, the, the Pharisees hear this. They question him on this. And instead of denying the Pharisees, Jesus endorses it. <laughs> he says, absolutely. And he goes on to this deal where he, he talks about being one. What does that mean, being one? Or, or, or not, I'm sorry, not being able to do anything without Jesus. If you have your Bibles, um, hopefully you do, or your iPads or whatever you look up with, turn over to Philippians chapter 2. This is something um, some of us may struggle with sometimes. There are things that I honestly will, will, will go to heaven with not understanding until I get there. Today we're going to talk a little bit about um, the deity the, the Trinity. That, that's something that's, that's hard for us. We, we, by faith, we can believe it. But when we really try and dissect it, those are hard things to fully understand and fully comprehend. Jesus leaves heaven, comes to earth. Fully God, fully man. It's hard to fully understand that concept. When we look at this idea um, in Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes, uh, verse 5, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus, when he left heaven and came to earth Paul tells us that he emptied himself of all these supernatural powers his independent supernatural powers when he came to earth he he took the form of man but what about the miracles that he does because he the bible records he does miracles right so he still had the power to do these miracles correct if we read the Bible and we believe the Bible, then we have to say, yes, he did. So how could he empty himself of all these supernatural powers but then be able to do supernatural things? Is the Bible contradicting himself? No. It's not because what we read about this in, in, in back in John 5, he says that I can do nothing of myself. The power comes from who? His Father. The power comes from his Father. See, the whole time that Jesus is here on earth, he is connecting with his Father. He is drawing upon his Father. He is relying on the Holy Spirit. That's why when we read about the temptation of Christ, when he's out in the wilderness, the devil comes and talks with him, and he wants him to use his powers. You guys remember that? He's calling Jesus to use his powers independently of God. to take all the honor and glory himself, separate from God the Father. See, Jesus was able to perform the miracles that he did through the power of God and the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not here to tell you this morning 
that we're capable of performing miracles like Jesus did. But I'm here this morning to tell you we're capable of having a connection to the Father and the Holy Spirit like Jesus did. We're capable of drawing close to him like Jesus drew to him. We are capable of having a love like he did. He was fully man. We see this in instance in this passage here where he says that he's equal with God. Um, Towards the end of verse 19, he says, for whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Jesus was the perfect reflection of the Father. The Son is the perfect reflection of the Father. What the Father does, the Son does. Jesus and God, we see here, John begins to lay the groundwork for the Trinity. In this particular passage, we see him talk about two of the three parts, God the Father and God the Son. Later, he'll bring the Holy Spirit into the mix. And again, it's one of those difficult things. They're two separate, but they're one. It's hard for our minds to understand this. But the reality is, the Father or the Son cannot contradict the Father. They're of the same essence, the same mind. He cannot contradict the Father. And so so here he's telling the people, listen, I can do nothing of myself. It's from the Father. And I can only do what the Father does because I'm the perfect reflection of the Father. So the first declaration that we see is he is equal with God. Next, let's go over to verses, uh, 20, or verse 21. Verse 21 says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son gives life to whom he will. Jesus is the giver of life. See, in order to give life, you have to be the source of life. And for a, a man to make this claim, to the people, it would have been outrageous. Who, who is this man to declare that he gives life? It's a, 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 we live in a fascinating day. You see all these medical marvels that occur. We've come so far in technology in the realm of medicine and care here's the deal like a doctor can prescribe medicine perform tasks to delay but a doctor cannot give life those of us who um, in our lives have experienced the loss of a loved one and I'm sure, if not all, most of us have. That's one of the most helpless feelings that we, we experience, isn't it? I mean, if, if a family member's sick, a, a loved one's sick, well, then we can go get them medicine and help them, right? Family member is going through a, a financial crisis, then, then we may be able to help them financially. 
family members or, or, or a friend is, is weary, is tired, and we can do things to help them get rest. But when someone passes away and dies, there's nothing we can do. We can just mourn. The source of life is not within our ability, our grasp to give. It lies in the hands of one, Jesus. And so he tells these Pharisees first that I'm equal with God, and then he says, listen, I am the giver of life. Next, um, in verses 22 and 23, he says that I'm the final judge. Let's read. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. See, God handed all judgment to Jesus. All judgment to Jesus. There comes a day in which all of us will breathe our last breath and stand before him. Why is Jesus the judge? See, Jesus left heaven to come to earth. Not only is he the son of God, sent from heaven, God's only son, he's a son of man who experienced life as a man like us. And so he, without hypocrisy, is the only one that can stand before us and judge us. That word judge is kind of a metaphorical word describing sifting through, observing. If we kind of package this with the next passage here in verse 24 where we see that, that um, where Jesus makes the claim that I will determine the final or the eternal destiny of humanity. Let's read verse 24 and put these both together to gain some deeper perspective because he says, truly, truly, or verily, verily, it's true, it's true. I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. See, Jesus is the only one who's going to grant us the ability to enter heaven or cast us to hell. Jesus is the judge. We stand before him and he judges us. And Jesus makes it quite, quite, quite plain here. And he says, Whoever hears my word and believes in me, the one who sent me has eternal life. It's your ticket to heaven. But he who does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life, that word judgment can be interchanged with condemnation. Jesus is trying to tell these Pharisees, not only am I equal with God, not only do I, not only am I the source of life, not only do I give life, but ultimately I'm the final judge. And I'm the one who's going to determine your eternity. 
These are bold declarations that Jesus is making. Bold declarations. These are, there's no compromise here. And Jesus very plainly says, if you obey my word and believe the one who sent me, you have eternal life. But if you don't, you're condemned. Jesus is trying to tell you guys, listen, just believe. Avoid the condemnation. Avoid the judgment. Believe, believe, believe. It's that simple. Verses 25 through 29. He throws out another declaration. And each of these are building on each other here. And he he says uh, in verse 25, Truly, truly, again, it's true, it's true. Verily, verily, listen, listen. I say to you, an hour is coming. It is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. And those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This declaration that Jesus makes here, I have the power to raise the dead. To the Orthodox Jew, to these Pharisees, to these religious leaders, this would have been a mind-blowing declaration. See, they believe that, that, that God held three keys. Okay, three keys. The first was the key to heaven. And God would use that when the rains would come down. So today, this morning, according to the, the, the Jews, God turned the key to heaven and brought us rain. We see that in Deuteronomy. Uh, the next key was the key uh, to the womb, the, the, the key of, of life. And when, when a, a, a couple would conceive with a child, that was God turning the key in the womb, the key to life. And then the third key was the key to the grave, where God could raise the dead. And that key they, 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 they see in Ezekiel 37, when you see this valley of dry bones that comes back to life. And so Jesus makes this declaration. These guys are... At this point, their, their heads are about to blow. Because not only is he, he he's saying he's equal with God, now he's saying he's got all the powers that God has. He has the same keys that God has. And, and Jesus is saying, yes, I have the key, I have the power. What my Father can do, I can do. He's revealed himself to me. He's given me the ability to see his works, to do his works. He loves me just like he loves you. What an amazing concept. And Jesus ends his declarations in verse 30. He says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. Because I seek not only, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me.
Hebrews, I believe it's 10.9. says, Jesus says, when he left heaven, he came to do God's will and God's will alone. He emptied himself, came here to, to do God's will. It's interesting, as you read those first verses, when you read verse 19 through verse 29, Jesus is speaking in the third person. You see those references of the Son of Man, the Son of God. This last verse, verse 30, he's, he's reiterating what he said in verse 19. Except here he's not using a third person. It's changed. So not to add any confusion to it, to make this crystal clear, he was not talking about somebody else. He was talking about himself. And he says, I, I, I. He's boldly declaring to the Pharisees that he was God. Folks, as we look at these declarations, we read this. Today, these declarations demand a response. There is a response. We all respond to what Jesus says here. We either accept or reject Jesus. By rejecting Jesus, it gives us these these two alternative ideas. If you say Jesus is no, then what you're saying is that, um, that Jesus was a liar, that Jesus knowingly lied to the people. As he said these things, he was lying to the thousands who would come and see him. He was lying to the twelve who would follow him to their own graves. You are saying that, that he is a liar. Or you're saying by rejecting his claim, rejecting his claim as being God's son, you're saying that he wasn't necessarily lying. He just didn't know what he was saying. I think it was Josh McDowell that said, Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. You can talk to a lot of people today who will say that Jesus was not God, but he was a good man, a good prophet, a good teacher, right? Maybe you've had that experience before. If you reject Jesus, he cannot be a good teacher or a good prophet because he was either lying or he was insane. So his teachings would not be trustworthy. So if you were going to reject God, if you're going to reject Jesus, you, you fall into that path of either rejecting him because you feel he's a liar or a lunatic. Or you accept what he says. And if you accept what he says, again, it draws us to the point where we have two choices to make. You believe what he says, but you don't trust him. Open up your Bibles quickly to James. James chapter 2. 
I think it's verse 19. James 2.19. Because you can believe, you can accept Jesus. You can accept that Jesus was God's son and still go to hell. And I want you to see this. Verse 19 says, You do believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Read that again. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. There's no great revelation here, folks. Satan believes in Jesus. The demons believe Jesus and they shudder in hatred and fear. So simply believing that there's a Jesus does not cut it. It's trusting. It's trusting that we are all sinners. But by God's grace, if we trust in him, we believe in him. We ask him to become the Lord of our life. Then we're trusting. When Jesus went before these Pharisees, he makes these declarations. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. There's no room for compromise. He is either liar, lunatic, or Lord. There's no in-between. The choice we make has eternal consequences, good or bad. Rejecting or acknowledging that he might be God, but not trusting him, has the same consequences. Revelation 16, 16, and again in 19, 19. The Bible tells us that the men will create armies to battle against Jesus. Those same men would go into war against the God they believe exists. Um, if you want to know what's, I think, one of the most haunting passages to me, I, uh, it scares me, quite honestly, whenever I read it. Matthew 7, verse 21. This is Jesus speaking. This isn't a disciple's idea or thought. This isn't a disciple's commentary. These are the words of Christ, of Jesus. Matthew 7, 21 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pause here for a moment. Most of us would admit that, right? Most of us would say, look, that's pretty obvious. Like, 
Not everyone's going to heaven. We know that there are people. We can look and we can see. We can see the world that we live in. We know there are people who are not going to heaven. That's no great revelation. This is the haunting part. Right? A little bit further here it says, But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? This is what haunts me, folks. These are people who went to the temple. These are people who hung out in church. They're prophesying, they're teaching, casting out demons. They're doing a lot of good things. Jesus turns to them, verse 23, and says, Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I stand before you this morning. I want you to hear very clearly from my mouth. We are not trying to establish a religion here at Redemption Hill Church. See, religion is what got the Pharisees in trouble. Religion caused them to turn their faith into a checklist, a list of do's and don'ts. And they would operate this list and they would add more and more rules to this so-called faith. And religion simply became a means for them to earn their salvation. A, me- a way for them to, as if that they could some way, shape, or form impress God with all the amazing things they did. They could do 23 chapters worth of not doing things on the Sabbath day to impress him. The Bible tells us that the road to hell is wide and the road to heaven is narrow. What caused such great trepidation in my soul is I believe we have a lot of people in churches today carrying a Bible toting the cross jewelry, their WWJD bracelets or whatever they have now that are on the road to hell. Because their faith is resting in a religion and not a relationship. They're focused on wearing the right clothes and doing the right things and singing the right songs and being part of the right groups and all these things. See, a lot of our churches today, and if we're not careful, we can fall into the same trap, fall more into the camp of the Pharisees than we would care to admit. Because it becomes about rules and regulations. We don't allow a relationship to occur. See, when Adam and Eve went to the garden and they sinned and they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, 
what occurred there is obviously sin, but Adam and Eve now had the understanding of what was right and what was wrong, what was good, what was bad. See, at that point, we lost the childlike dependence on God to turn to God and say, is this right or is this wrong? And sin came within us, the knowledge of the good and evil, and now we want to become independent of him and do our own things, our own ways, rather than turn to him. My hope, my prayer for us as we accept these declarations, that we realize, we realize that Jesus is equal with God. That Jesus is the source of life. Jesus gives life. That Jesus is the final judge. And praise God that he is the judge. Because he's also, don't forget, the same one who left heaven to come to earth. While we were still screwed up, while we were still rotten, vile sinners, he died on a cross for us. And so as he casts judgment, he does it with hands that are pierced for us. And he does determine our eternal destiny. The reality is that we determine it down here or whether we accept Christ as our Lord and Savior and trust in Him or reject Him. That decision, folks, sometimes we view it as only if we make that decision then we get, to, we get heaven or hell. That, that's, that's it, right? The reality is the moment we ask Christ to become our Lord and Savior, the rewards start here. I um, was so thankful on Sunday night. Women, you had your Bible study, right? And, um, and so I uh, have the kids, and we have four kids. Too many, but I love them. <laughs> the girls, ladies are doing Bible study at my in-law's house. And I'm going to just be honest, you're transparent. A dad, like if you have more than one kid and they're young, you all know that as soon as the wife leaves, it's bedtime, <laughs> right? And so as soon as Courtney left, I'm trying to get them together and, okay, girls, it's bedtime. Let's go. Let's get this thing done. So put them in bed. And um, I go downstairs to do whatever. You all know your children pretty well, and you know how each child is a little bit different. I have one particular child who um, does whatever she can to not sleep. You know who you are. <laughs> My oldest. And so, um, you know, they go down, and, and usually with Mackenzie, it's whatever. I have to go to the bathroom, whatever. I'm downstairs, and I can hear the pitter-patter of feet. Instantly, my mind believes it's Mackenzie. So I'm already frustrated before she even gets downstairs. I walk down there, and lo and behold, it's not Mackenzie. It's Addison. And um, Addison um, can be like her dad sometimes, a little emotional. 
And she's, her eyes are already red. And um, I asked her what the problem was, and she began to kind of mumble something. I couldn't hear, so I had to ask her like four times what the problem was. And, and she said to me, she goes, Daddy, I, I think I want to ask Jesus into my heart. Those of you who have children, you know that's those prayers that you, as, a, as, a, as babies, I, I can honestly tell you with, with all my children, I don't, pr- I don't pray for success. I don't pray that they are beautiful. I don't pray that they um, are, 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 are talented. I don't pray that, that, that they have a great job one day. I can honestly tell you that the one thing I pray for my children is that they love Jesus. That's all I care about. That's all I care about because that's the only thing they can take to heaven with them. And so you pray these prayers, and um, and so I sit down, and and, and 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 she and I sit down on the couch, start talking. I'm texting Courtney, you better hurry up because she wants to do this. I know you want to be here. And she says, "Hold up, I'm trying to get out of here." And so I end up almost talking Addison out of asking Jesus into her heart because I'm trying to kill time here. We're reading the Bible, New Testament, Old Testament. There's not a more precious time than when you have a chance to sit down with a child and you see that light bulb go off and they realize that Jesus is God. And they realize that He is Lord. They realize that they've done wrong things in life. And then they realize that Jesus loved them so much that he died for them. I, I've been fortunate that um, two of my four children have accepted Christ now as their Lord and Savior. I will also tell you, Courtney has to lead a prayer because I'm crying like a baby. <laughs> it's the single greatest decision the most impactful decision we will ever make. Folks, we all make a decision. Every single one of us makes a decision. We either accept or reject. There's no in between. There's no in between. And my particular burden this morning is for people that have been in church their whole life. I'm not trying to get anybody to second guess your salvation at all. I just want us to be real, to be genuine. God knows. I think one of the most tragic things in life could be this. For us to fake it down here on earth that we're Christians and be too afraid of what other people around us might believe. And then when it's all said and done, because of our own pride, stand before Jesus and hear him say 
apart from me. I never knew you. See, because when we stand before Jesus, it's too late. We're not going to stand in hell one day saying, well, at least everyone back on earth thinks I'm a Christian. At that point, it makes no difference. So I'm not trying to ask anybody, I'm not trying to cause anybody to doubt your salvation. That's not the goal this morning. The goal this morning is for all of us to think and pray. And remember, it is not about a religion. It's not about a church. It's about a relationship. And if you've never entered a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, it's between you and him. I beg you, plead with you to do that this morning. Let's pray.